It started out as any other Tuesday morning, but this day was going to be far from normal. It was October 19th, 2004, in a town called Linköping in Sweden. Eight-year-old Mohammed leaves his apartment to walk the short distance to school. And at about the same time, 56-year-old Anna-Lena leaves her home to go to work. They have no connection, and they have never met each other. But what happens this morning is going to connect them forever. This is the story of the double homicide in Linköping. Hi, and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. It's so great to be back, and I kept you waiting long enough, so let's get right over to today's case. This is episode 39 of True Crime Sweden, the double homicide in Linköping. The episode is researched and written by Johanna Udstål Friberg. Thank you so much, Johanna. The case I'm going to talk about today happened back in 2004. But before we get into what happened that October day in 2004, let's go back to another event first. I remember watching the press conference live when they arrested the alleged Golden State Killer in April of 2018. I was so impressed by the fact that the investigators were able to track down the then 72-year-old man who had hidden in plain sight since his last known offense back in 1986. I've been following that case, and I was amazed by the new technology with familial DNA that made this arrest possible. If you want to get into the Golden State Killer case, or Eron's, East Area Rapist, or Original Night Stalker. He had many names. You should listen to Season 2 of Criminology Podcast with Mike Morford and Mike Ferguson. I don't think it's still in the regular feed, but you can listen to it on Stitcher Premium. And no, I am not sponsored now. Mike and Mike were in the middle of their season about the Golden State Killer when he was arrested. It was so amazing to follow. They really dove deep into the case. I really recommend it. But now back to familial DNA. If we just for one minute go back to episode 20 of True Crime Sweden, the serial rapist, also known as the Haga Man, you may also remember how they had the brother of the perpetrator's DNA tested, but he was dismissed from the case. The police used a simple type of DNA testing then, one that was quicker and cheaper, 
but it also only tests a fraction of the whole DNA profile, 15 different markers to be exact. Since the brother was not the rapist, his 15 DNA markers were not a match. If they had used the familial DNA testing, they would have known that the rapist was a relative to the brother. Following the arrest of the Golden State Killer in 2018, the Swedish police took measures to change the legislation to allow the same DNA methods used in the U.S. In January of 2019, a new law allowing so-called family search of DNA samples collected on crime scenes was in place. Instead of looking for 15 different markers, Family Search uses 750,000 markers to find matches in the public commercial DNA registers, such as GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA. The case I'm about to share with you today is one of the two cold cases that have been solved here in Sweden thanks to this new legislation. This is the case of the double homicide in Linköping, where 8-year-old Mohammed and 56-year-old Anna-Lena were brutally killed in broad daylight for no apparent reason. It was on a Tuesday, October 19, 2004. The sky was grey and there was a light drizzle in Linköping that morning. Linköping is the fifth largest city in Sweden, about two and a half hours southwest of Stockholm. It was 7.30 in the morning, and Anna-Lena was getting ready for work. She and her husband Olov had moved to the apartment on the street Åsgatan two years previously. They didn't need the extra space they had in their house now when the children had moved out. 56-year-old Anna-Lena was a Swedish teacher for children and adults with Swedish as their second language. She loved her work, and she was highly regarded by both her fellow teachers and students at the school. Her workplace was not far from home, so she would usually walk to and from school every day. Sometimes Olov, her husband, would accompany her for a morning walk when she left for work, since he almost always worked from home. But this morning he looked out the bedroom window and noticed the rainy clouds and decided to stay in. At 7.45, he could hear Anna-Lena getting ready to leave as she was walking from the kitchen to the bathroom. He intersected her to give her a goodbye kiss, and she said, Don't forget that I get off work at 5 today, not 4. Please have the rice pudding from last night heated by the time I get home. Olav looked at the kitchen clock as she was leaving. It said 7.48, and he locked the door behind her and walked back into the bedroom turned on the TV and sat down on the bed to watch. As all of this was taking place, another family was getting ready to start their day. Eight-year-old Mohammed lived with his parents and four siblings in the same apartment building as Anna-Lena. He was running late and his mother tried her best to get all of his things in his backpack before he left. If I leave before 7.45, I won't be late for school, he said to his mom. Mohammed was a cheerful guy with lots of energy. He played soccer in a nearby club, and he had many friends. 
He really liked his teachers and he enjoyed school. But he was not a huge fan of getting up early in the morning. So being almost late was not uncommon for Muhammad. The family lived only 10 minutes walking distance from the school. And Muhammad could make it in five minutes if he ran. So he was not too worried this Tuesday morning as he grabbed his backpack and walked out the door. When he was in first grade, he walked to school with his 13-year-old sister. But now, when he was in second grade, he was old enough to walk by himself. It made him feel more grown-up, especially as everyone in his family always treated him as the baby since he was the youngest of five siblings. It had been quite a struggle to convince his parents that he was old enough to walk by himself. He had had many arguments with his parents about this. But since they could see him from their apartment window almost all the way to school, and the fact that his older sister left for school right after him, they let him walk alone. So Mohammed said goodbye to his mom and closed the door behind him and ran down the stairs. He looked at his watch and it said 7.45. Great, then I don't have to run, he thought to himself, and started walking along the street, Åsgatan. What he didn't know was that a man with a knife had just reached the same street as him, and he was moving really fast behind him. As the man reached Muhammad, he stabbed him in the neck from behind and continued stabbing as Muhammad fell to the ground. The man was kneeling next to the little boy when Anna-Lena entered the scene. Muhammad had been stabbed 27 times, mostly in his back and neck. Anna-Lena yelled at him, Hey, what are you doing? And the man stopped what he was doing stood up and looked at Anna-Lena as he approached her with determined footsteps. Anna-Lena couldn't believe what she was seeing. A little boy was lying on the ground with his face up, and blood was pouring out of him. It wasn't until the man stood right in front of her that she realized that she was going to be attacked next. The man stabbed Anna-Lena ten times in the chest and she fell to the ground only a few yards from Muhammad as she screamed out for help. A witness, Begitta, lives on the second floor with a living room window overlooking the street Åsgatan. She's a physician and was getting herself ready to go to work this morning when she heard someone screaming outside. She heard two or three helpless screams and tried to localize where they came from. When she looked out the window, she saw a woman walking wobbly in a crouched position towards the lawn next to the parking lot. As the woman reached the grass, she fell down and continued screaming for help. Birgitta immediately put on her shoes, grabbed her cell phone and ran out the door, down the stairs to the woman on the ground. Just as she was getting closer, she was joined by another neighbor, Mats who was also a doctor. I just want to make a short reflection about this. 
What are the odds that the first two people at the scene are doctors? That's just amazing. Anyway, when they reached Anna-Lena, they noticed that she was pointing down the street further down. And that's when they both realized that there was another person on the ground. Begitta quickly ran over to Muhammad and was terrified when she saw the little boy completely covered in blood. She felt his wrist, but she could not feel a pulse. Begitta later told the investigators that she heard Muhammad take one last breath, just as she came to his rescue. It was too late for him. His injuries were too severe. He was already dead. So she ran back to see if there was anything she could do for Anna-Lena. Mats had stayed with Anna-Lena while Begitta checked on Mohammed. So instead of interfering with his work, Begitta called 112 to get an ambulance to the scene as fast as possible. And then she went back to Mohammed again and stayed with him to make sure he was safe. Mats, the other doctor, later told the police that he had heard screaming from the outside and ran out to see what was going on. His first thought was that this woman must have tripped and fallen over. Maybe she had broken an arm or something. Anna-Lena was awake when he finally reached her, and she told him that she had been stabbed by someone with a knife. Mats couldn't grasp what she was saying. Stabbed here in Linköping? By whom? Then she continued talking about the little boy, asking how he was doing. This is when Begitta walked over to Mohammed to check on him. While Mats stayed with Anna-Lena, he heard her mumbling something like, Completely unprovoked, an act of insanity, a 20-year-old boy. At this stage, both Mats and Begitta knew Anna-Lena was really badly hurt. They heard it in her voice and saw it on the color of her face. While they were waiting for the ambulance, Anna-Lena wanted Mats to get her purse so she could get her phone and call her husband. Mats offered to call her husband on his phone instead, and Anna-Lena gave him the number. This is how awake she actually was at the scene. She could remember both her social security number and her husband's phone number. Mats called the number and let it ring. But Anna-Lena's husband, Olav, didn't pick up. He still had no idea what had happened to his wife. It felt like forever to Birgitta and Mats, but finally two ambulances parked by the side of the road and the paramedics came running. The 112 call was made at 7.55 a.m. and the ambulances were there at 8 o'clock. Anna-Lena was not bleeding very much. Her stab wounds were small, most of them on the left side of her chest, around her heart. She was coughing blood, though which was a clear sign of her lungs being injured. The paramedic also noticed that Anna-Lena was pale and in severe pain. 
There was froth and a little bit of blood coming out of her mouth while they were lifting her up on the gurney to bring her into the ambulance. And she said, That really hurts. It feels like I'm going to pass out. At 8.06 that morning, Anna-Lena was rushed to the emergency room, where she was immediately taken into surgery. Before she lost consciousness, she repeatedly asked how things were going for the little boy. The doctors worked on her for hours, but her injuries were too severe. They called her time of death at 11.12 a.m. While Anna-Lena was rushed to the hospital, the paramedics worked on Mohammed at the crime scene. He was unresponsive and without a pulse when they examined him. As they were preparing his body for defibrillation, they realized it was too late. There was nothing they could do for him anymore, but they took him to the hospital, as the protocol states. Back in Anna-Lena's apartment, the 8 o'clock news came on. But Anna-Lena's husband, Olov, wasn't interested in watching. Instead, he walked out to the living room and heard a lot of commotion on the street outside. He looked out and noticed ambulances and police. Oh my god, what's going on, he thought to himself. Then he remembered that he had put his cell phone in his jacket and went to get it before he was going to start his workday. Olav worked from home a lot, and this Tuesday was a work-at-home day. He noticed he had a missed call on his phone. He googled the number and found out that it belonged to a man in a neighboring apartment building. He couldn't understand why this man had called him at this time of day. For what? When he looked outside again, the police were blocking the streets with the police tape. And he thought to himself... I hope Anna-Lena made it past the barriers. As he was looking out the window, he saw someone being carried into an ambulance and the officers talking to people who had been starting to gather around. It wasn't until a police officer came knocking on his door shortly thereafter that he was told what had happened to Anna-Lena. The policeman was just knocking on doors to try to find witnesses when they found him. Naturally, the police took him to the hospital as soon as they realized who he was. Back in Mohammed's house, his older sister was getting ready for school and walked out the front door right after 8 o'clock. She was going to walk to school, but didn't come far until a uniformed policeman told her to go back inside. She ran back home and told her mother that there was an ambulance and police officers outside. She had seen a little boy laying on the ground, but the fact that it could be Mohammed didn't even cross her mind. Mohammed's sister was very upset and told her mother she would not go back out there unless her mother came with her. So they both went out again and took the back door out of the apartment building. Eventually, they reached the school. Her mother told the teacher what had happened outside their house. And then she walked back home again. But before she got home, her oldest daughter called to tell her that Mohammed had not come to school that morning. Mohammed's teacher had called the home phone, and the sister still at home picked up and called her mother's cell phone. Mohammed's father had not yet left for work, so he went outside to ask the police what was going on. As he introduced himself, 
they realized who he was and gave him a ride to the hospital. Shortly thereafter, Muhammad's mother joined him there. While Annalena and Muhammad's families learned what had happened to their loved ones, the police performed knock-and-talks in the buildings facing the crime scene and heard other witnesses. Although they didn't find anyone that had witnessed the actual assault, there were multiple people who had seen the killer run off. The witnesses had some differences in their descriptions, but a few things were similar. It was a white male in his 20s, and he was physically fit. He was wearing a black knitted hat tucked down, almost covering his face. He was about average height, and he wore white shoes and dark shirt and pants. It wasn't long before the police found the murder weapon in a nearby bush. It was a medium-sized butterfly knife. And because the description of the man was published in a local newspaper the next day, the owner of a local store called the police to tell them that there was a knitted black hat in one of the newspaper boxes outside. The criminal investigators went to the store and they took the whole box with them to look for possible DNA traces and fingerprints. The police couldn't believe their luck when it was later discovered that there was blood from the killer on the knife and DNA in the hat. It was only a matter of time before they would catch this maniac. At least, that's what they believed in those first couple of days after the murders. Little did they know that it would take 16 years before they found him. But let's stay in the time when the murders happened for now. Linköping is not a big city, and double homicides are not a common thing in Sweden, and especially not in a small city as Linköping. So the local police quickly asked the criminal profiling department of the Swedish police for help. On November 1st, their profile was finished and shared with the local police force. It said the perpetrator most likely committed the crime without prior planning. Judging from the scene of the crime, the time of day, and the mediocre weapon he used, everything pointed at a random act of madness. The man was believed to be an isolated, mentally disturbed young man, a loner, and an odd type who has probably wandered around lean shopping during evenings and nights. In the years that followed these murders, the police tried everything they could possibly think of to catch the killer. Here are some examples. In 2005, the year after the murder, the police ran the DNA through a DNA registry at the time, which had about 3,000 profiles in it back then. No match. In March of 2005, they reached out to all the social service offices in Lin Shopping to ask for possible suspects who fit the description that they could test for DNA. Later that same year, 2005, Muhammad's father called the police to say that he had dreamt about the killer several times. He did say, I know it's just a dream, but I still want to tell you. He claimed that he had dreamed about a man called Daniel, and he was supposedly about 18 years old and also lived close to the street Åsgatan. Two years after the murders, 
About 40 detectives had been involved in the investigation at one point or another. The case file now covered about 20,000 documents and 5,200 leads. By 2006, 600 people had been DNA tested in an effort to find the killer. In 2008, the DNA register now contained 45,000 people and they ran the profile again. No match. The National Cold Case Team looked at the case in 2012 and went through the whole investigation once again. Over 2,000 people had now been DNA tested without getting a match. A theory that was brought up by the investigators was that the killer may have suffered from a severe mental breakdown following the murders. And it may have taken such a toll on him that he committed suicide. So they defined an H-span and contacted all the families of men who had committed suicide and fit the profile and asked them for their DNA to see if they might find him that way. No matches were ever found through this method either. And then, in April of 2018, the news about the Golden State Killer was announced. It immediately spawned the interest of the lead investigator on the case, Jan Stoff. There were multiple hurdles to overcome though, both legally and ethically. Allowing so-called family search in the Swedish DNA registers was made possible after this change of legislation that came into effect on January 1st, 2019. Family search means that DNA traces from a crime scene can be used not only to find a match of the actual suspect, but it will also find close relatives such as parents, children, siblings, cousins, and so on. Once a family match is found through DNA, regular genealogy research methods are used. These include searching through historical church records and such. The initial DNA match is used to point the genealogist in the right direction. The Swedish DNA family searches are carried out by the National Forensic Center, NFC, primarily for the most serious crimes such as murder, manslaughter, attempted murder, and serious sexual offenses. Since it became legal in January 2019, family search has led to the resolution of two cold cases. One was a brutal sexual assault of a nine-year-old girl in 1995, where a family search found a close relative of the rapist, and he was finally found and prosecuted in 2019, 24 years after the attack. The National Forensic Center, NFC, now maintains three different registers for DNA profiles. Spår registret, the trace register, utredningsregistret, the investigation register, and the DNA register.
The trace register contains unknown DNA profiles collected from crime scenes. Here, DNA profiles are registered from samples that have been secured in connection with a criminal investigation and has not yet been linked to a person. When a DNA profile is matched to a person, it is no longer part of this register. In most cases, the profiles may remain in this trace register for a maximum of 30 years. However, 70 years applies to the crime categories that have no statute of limitations, for example, murder and manslaughter. The investigation register contains DNA profiles from people who are suspected of a crime that could result in imprisonment. It was this register that changed on January 1st, 2006. Since then, Anyone who is suspected of a crime that could result in imprisonment may be obliged to submit a DNA sample for this investigation register. Before that, only people with probable cause suspicion could be tested for DNA. Lastly, the DNA register. It contains DNA profiles from people convicted of a crime with a penalty more than a fine or alternatively has approved a criminal injunction on probation. If a person for some reason is removed from the criminal record, their DNA is also removed from the DNA register. More than half of the crime scene traces registered in the trace register have a direct match in the first search of the DNA register. Approximately 70% of all profiles registered in the trace register find a match within a year, which probably says more about repeated criminal behavior than how many people are in the databases. But anyway, in a normal DNA test of a suspect, 15 different markers of a DNA sequence are analyzed. In forensic genealogy and family search, 750,000 markers are used. And that's why it can find distant relatives to a suspect. In the summer of 2019, a genealogist called Peter Sjölund called the police in Linköping and asked if they wanted help in finding the Linköping killer. He was convinced he could find this guy. He later told the reporters, Genealogy always had kind of a dorky feel to it. Only geeks are interested in it. But nowadays... It has a different vibe to it. I read somewhere that the Swedish police force wanted to try this method out, and I just picked up the phone and called Jan Stoff, the lead investigator on the case, and he said to me, absolutely, you are more than welcome to try. Genetic genealogy is the use of DNA testing in combination with traditional genealogical methods. A test became more affordable for ordinary people about 10 years ago. The DNA databases provided by commercial actors such as Ancestry, 23andMe, or Family Tree DNA have grown exponentially. As of 2019, about 30 million people around the world have had their DNA tested for genealogical purposes. According to GEDmatch, about half of their profiles are American. In Sweden, about 100,000 people have their DNA tested up until today. 
and we have a population of about 10 million people here. Genealogist Peter Sjölund started using DNA databases in his work in 2015. He and the journalist Karin Boyce wrote a book called Svenskarna och deras fäder, The Swedes and Their Fathers, in 2016. It was hugely popular in the genealogy community. To find the Linköping killer, genealogist Peter Sjölund used the same methods as he does when creating a family tree. He uploaded the DNA profile of the killer to the jedmatch.com and family tree DNA databases, and they found 900 matches. 25 of these fit the known profile of the killer, a male Caucasian now in his 30s and not deceased. All of them were related to him, four through seven generations back. They also shared one more trace in common. All of them had their ancestors in the bigger Linköping geographical region. Once the people were identified through DNA, he looked for their relatives in the historical records available through a method called reverse genealogy. Instead of going back from a known person, such as yourself, you turn the family tree around and go forward in time from known distant relatives. Eventually, it came down to two possible suspects, two brothers who lived in Linköping. They were both taken in for questioning on June 8th, this past summer of 2020. One of the brothers lived with his wife and family, and the other lived alone. According to the investigators, it was very obvious which of the two brothers who fit the profile of being an isolated, mentally disturbed young man, a loner and an odd type. The main suspect was identified as Daniel Nyqvist, a 37-year-old man who at the time of the crime was 21 years old. And yes, his name was Daniel. Just like in Muhammad's father's dream. By the time they had tracked him down, the police had performed over 6,200 DNA tests in search of the killer. Mind-blowing if you ask me. Just for comparison, in the case of the Haga man, the serial rapist in episode 20, they had 777 people tested. In Daniel's very first hearing with the police, upon learning what he was under suspicion for, he simply said, Is this when I should ask for an attorney? The interrogator then asked, Can you at least tell me if you consider yourself guilty of this or not? And Daniel answered, Guilty. After leaving the interrogation room, his DNA was tested. And as soon as they could get him an attorney, the hearings continued. And it was very clear right from the beginning that Daniel was not a man of many words. He spoke in a staccato-like voice, stating only single words, barely any full sentences. He never spoke freely, but he answered all of the investigators' questions. 
In the years following the double murder, Daniel led a secluded life. Several childhood friends that reporters talked to after the arrest describe him as odd and also said that during his high school years, he isolated himself to the extent that he lost contact even with his closest friends. He also drank large amounts of alcohol by himself in his room. He had never been a subject for a criminal investigation before this, and he had no social media presence. He had been living a very secluded life and never attempted to hurt anyone after the double homicide took place. Daniel always had a great interest in video games and role-playing games. His thesis work in high school was a website that revolved around a game called Counter-Strike, so most of the time he would stay inside, drinking and playing games on his computer. He had no friends, and his parents had passed away a few years back. The only people he regularly talked to during holidays and such was his brother and his grandparents. Other than that, he spent his time alone in his apartment. If the DNA family search had not been successful in tracking Daniel down, the police say they most likely would have caught him very soon anyway. In January of 2020, they received a tip about Daniel Nyqvist as a possible perpetrator. A former childhood friend of his told the police about his interest in knives and his odd behavior. This friend had tried contacting the police at least one time in the past, but he hung up the phone when it took too long for them to answer. The friend later told reporters, He always walked around in a black hat like the one the police found. He wore it all the time. I also knew he had knives, butterfly knives. There was something about him that wasn't all right. In later hearings with Daniel, the interrogator asked about the motive. Why he decided to kill two random people in broad daylight. Daniel said he just woke up and had a strong urge to kill that day. He got up that morning and didn't even care about brushing his teeth because he was probably going to get killed himself that day. Once he had completed his mission, he figured he would be killed by the police. So he took the bus from his hometown of Sturefors, a locality with 2,200 inhabitants. It's about a 20-minute drive from Sturefors to the central station in Linköping. Once there, he walked the streets looking for possible victims. He passed several people before he decided to attack Muhammad. The eight-year-old boy was chosen because he was small. The likelihood of succeeding was greater with a small person compared to a large one, Daniel told the police. So he had a strong inner sense that he needed to kill two people that day. No other motive has been stated. And if you listen to the court records, you will get a sense of what state this man is in. Just listening to his monotone voice tells me that something isn't quite right with this man. I will put a link to a YouTube clip in the show notes if you want to hear it. Daniel was tried and found guilty of two accounts of first-degree murder on October 1st, 2020. 
In Sweden, you cannot plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But at the same time, you can't sentence someone to prison if they are mentally ill. So the court first make a ruling on whether the person is guilty or not. And if the verdict is guilty, the defendant is sent for psychiatric evaluation. If he or she is found mentally ill, they are sentenced to psychiatric care, not prison. This is what happened to Daniel. He was found guilty and found to be mentally ill and was sentenced to institutional psychiatric care with a special discharge review. It basically means that he could spend the rest of his life locked up in a psychiatric ward. There's no time limit. But he is up for review regularly. And if he is considered mentally stable again in the future, he will be let back out in society. To try to end this horrible story on a lighter note, I want to mention what Muhammad's parents did. Two years after Muhammad and Anna Lena was murdered, Muhammad's parents welcomed a little baby girl. They named her Anna Lena in honor of the woman who tried to save their son. That is so beautiful. My thoughts go out to Muhammad and Anna Lena's loved ones. Thank you so much for listening to episode 39 of True Crime Sweden. This episode was researched and written by Johanna Udstål Friberg. I'm so happy to be back again. I've missed podcasting so much. If you wonder why the podcast was gone for so long, I explain everything in a short announcement that you can find in the feed. And if you listened to True Crime Sweden before, you know that we have one thing left. The fun fact about Sweden. And today I'm going to talk about my experience of the start of the pandemic here in Sweden. At first, when reports about the virus started coming in from China, no one really thought this would become a pandemic. The Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs, UD, decided on January 26th to advise against non-essential travel to the Hubei province in China. On February 11th, they changed the advice to include all travel to the Hebei province. And on February 17th, an advice against all travel to China, except for Hong Kong and Macau, was issued. And it continued. On February 27th, an advice against all non-essential travel to Iran was issued. That advice changed to all travel to Iran on March 2nd. At the same time, my husband had a ski trip planned for February 29th. One week of skiing in Canasei in northern Italy. In the end of February, we started getting reports that Italy had a big outbreak of the coronavirus in Lombardia. That region was over five hours away from where my husband was going. And we thought it was safe. Remember, 
we didn't know as much as we do now back then. My husband and his friends kept talking about cancelling up until a few hours before their flight, but they finally decided to go. Sweden had not at this time any recommendation not to travel to Italy. But during the time they were there, more and more reports kept coming from Italy. My husband's boss said that he had to work from home for two weeks after he arrived in Sweden, and similar demands came from his friends' workplaces too. To be on the safe side, we decided he couldn't just come home. So I went grocery shopping and planned food that would be easy to prepare for him in case he got sick when he got home. And of course, I bought toilet paper. Then I filled up one of our cars, loaded two weeks of groceries in there, and also some beer, because I am a nice wife. And then, me and my oldest daughter drove to the airport to meet him, in two different cars. We met him, and we stayed about 30 feet away from him at all time. It was heartbreaking not to be able to hug him, but better safe than sorry. The keys to his car was left in the car, and I had coffee and sandwiches ready for him in the car so he could make the two-hour drive to our cabin without stopping anywhere. On March 6th, the day before my husband arrived in Sweden, the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs advised Swedish citizens from traveling to North Italy and South Korea. And four days later, on March 10th, the advice was changed to include all travel to Italy. But at this time, no one in the government realized that they should have included Austria too. Austria borders to Italy in the north, and almost all skiing trips from Northern Europe fly into Austria, and then they pass over the border to Italy by bus. It is the easiest way to travel there. On Stockholm Arlanda Airport, everything was the same though. No face masks, no screening for fever, no regulations for people arriving from China, Iran or Italy. You could just walk right through customs and get on a train or catch a cab like nothing was going on. And on March 11th, Sweden realized that Austria was a risk as well, and a recommendation not to travel to Austria was issued. I don't know if you remember, but on March 13th, the World Health Organization, WHO, declared the coronavirus as a pandemic. And the day after that, the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs advised Swedes not to travel anywhere. Swedish authorities recommended everyone who has the possibility to work from home to do that. They also told us to wash our hands, cough and sneeze into our arm instead of our hands, and to keep distance to other people. And of course, to stay home if you had any symptoms of illness. One thing that might be different here in Sweden is that our government cannot tell people that they have to stay home. There is no law supporting that. All we get is recommendations, and most people accept and live by the recommendations. But of course, not everyone does. If you compare to, say, Spain, people were actually locked inside their houses. They could go only to the grocery store or the pharmacy twice a week. 
and they had to go to the closest grocery store, even though it was a super small one. If you didn't follow these rules, you could be fined about $300. There were police officers patrolling the streets and checking up on people all the time. I have a close relative who lived in Spain at this time, so I have first-hand information on this. You couldn't even go out for a walk. The virus spread quickly in our capital, Stockholm, but a huge mistake made it even worse. A couple of weeks after we were recommended to work from home, if it was possible, the trains and buses that people used to commute to work changed their schedule to run a weekend schedule during the weekdays because a lot of commuters worked from home. That might have seemed like a great idea, but it resulted in, for example, that instead of six buses an hour, there were only one. And that one was of course crowded, because some people still had to get to work. Everyone cannot work from home. And since no one in Sweden uses a face mask, people got sick. There is so much to say about how different Sweden has handled the pandemic. So I'm going to continue that after the next episode. And if anyone wonders, my husband never got sick. But I'm still glad that we chose to be careful there in the beginning. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And if you want to support the podcast, you can tell a friend about it. Or head over to patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you again next time. Goodbye. Hey, do.